Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic. Joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood, and Ann, this is our 49th episode. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, but also a little nostalgic because we're coming up on our 50th episode. And as we're recording this, I'm actually in Seattle, Washington, for the Seattle Film Festival, where one year ago. You and I had a conversation at a party and decided to start doing this thing. So we've come a long way, haven't we? It's true, and you you made it happen. So I'm I'm delighted. Well, it's a team effort. It's a team effort. Let's be clear. We're both talking here and arguing things through, and a lot has happened over the past year. That's for sure. But one of the things that I seem to recall is that when we first started doing this podcast, we were coming off of Cannes and talking through that lineup and also anticipating the fall season lineup. And here we are once again doing that. I mean, in June, it's interesting how early everything is is dropping. And I, I have this sense of these slots, you know, the gala slots that are that are you know, the three big slots at New York Film Festival, the the big gala slots in Toronto opening, closing. I mean, Suffragette is now going to open the London Film Festival as a European premiere, which means it's going to play, it's going to debut somewhere else in North America. Um, and uh, and and today we got the big news about New York. Yep, the here walk. It comes. The walk. Robert Zemeckis's movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, based on Man on Wire, about that guy who climbed, climbed across the the World Trade Center buildings in the early seventies. Skipped, skipped across, towed across. I mean, in some ways, it sounds like it has a certain kinship with Zemeckis's last kind of award season uh, movie, which was flight because it's about another guy sort of thrust into the limelight and coming from this sort of lively background and and coping with what it means to be that kind of a a person in the public eye. Although in in that sense, Philippe Petit, I think, actually wanted that exposure, whereas the, the character in flight was more unwittingly thrust into it. But one of the things that I've noticed is, so the news that this movie is opening New York Film Festival dropped basically at the exact same time there was a new trailer. Well, that was obviously concerted. Clearly. And buzz, or at least expectations for this movie, seemed sort of mixed for a while, not for any particular I had a mixed reaction at CinemaCon to the footage that they introduced there, and the reason for it and I don't think I was alone, was that it's it's got a couple of things that it has to overcome. And it may, in fact, overcome them in the context of a full movie. But on the one hand, you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt, an American actor, doing a very strong French accent because he's impersonating a Frenchman. Now, he's got the grace and the athleticism to embody a tight walker quite believably. But... Um, the French accent did give a lot of us pause. And then there was the fact that it's the 70s, a very you know detailed recreation of a period, which is also a challenging one to do believably uh, on screen. Now, what does this mean? It means that the New York Film Festival, at least, believes is putting its you know stamp of approval on on you know curating this movie for opening night. And there are a few pieces to analyze here. One is, well, clearly some, if not all, of the New York Film Festival committee has seen this movie and responded positively enough 
to let it be an opening night slot. If it was a disaster, they would not do that. They've shown movies that don't quite work or that divide people on this level before, like the David Chase film that he That directed. wasn't opening night. That was a centerpiece. And, and Precious and, was another one. Well, that had already debuted it right. at, at Sundance. No, they did Gone Girl. They did Social Network. Uh, they did The Queen. Right. They did... Um, Secrets and Lies. These are all opening night films that went on to serious Oscar campaigns. But you're missing one really crucial one from a very recent memory, which is uh, the film that... So this is a, a Sony movie uh, with Sony being headed by Tom Rothman, who was at Fox when Life of Life Pi... Of Pi. Absolutely. Life of Pi was a very good opening. And then the other, you know, they showed Hugo as a work in progress and and uh, another three, 3D experiment. But... Um, I, I, the centerpiece that was sort of a classic belly flop was was the was the Ben Stiller um, Walter Mitty movie. Sure. Um, so they're capable of, of of misjudging the quality of a film in terms of how it's going to be received at that particular. Yeah, but even festival. then, I mean, that was a movie where some some people were more. I liked it. Liked I did. It. Yeah. I did. It I was did. a weird fit for that particular festival, but it had its defenders. So. There, yeah, so we don't point. know. We don't know whether this will turn out to be a complete winner or or not. Because, but 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 there, you can see that with Suffragette and and so some other festival has already invited Suffragette to be the world premiere in North America, whether it's Toronto or New York or the London people wouldn't have called it a European premiere. So that's an interesting question. Well, you look at the trailer for that movie, and it's such a fall season. Perfect. I mean, it, it's not. It's 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 uber sentimental in a way that probably the New York Film Festival wouldn't necessarily get behind. It just seems slightly off brand for them. But it's also a big social issues movie about you know women's rights and very timely, really. Meryl given Streep the super in it. sensitivity that people have toward sure. that subject right now. Sure, and I think it's it's just. When you look at the trailer, I don't look at a lot of trailers. That's that's one where it seems like you look at that trailer and you get a pretty clear sense of, of what that movie is. Well, it's the same writer behind The Iron Lady, Abby Morgan, and um, Sarah Gavron is a decent director. So, I'm you know, another movie directed by a woman opening a festival, by the way. That's so, true. Uh, the tides um, are shifting. Yeah, but meanwhile, the Toronto Film Festival, we both met with um, Cameron Bailey, and I met with uh, Pierce Handling as well, and, and clearly they recognized that their uh, upfront sort of reaction to the Telluride booking, basically, of 12 Years a Slave, that was a surprise to them, you know, that it got such a huge... The eventual Best Picture winner was effectively introduced at Telluride and not really a world premiere at Toronto, even though Telluride tries to, to glaze around that distinction by saying we don't have premieres at Telluride. No, let's, we don't let's, announce premieres. Let's contextualize this for, for listeners because there's the, it's, it's a little inside baseball, but it has a ripple effect that's bigger than that, which is, so Telluride is showing these movies, not calling them world premieres. Toronto makes this a decree very publicly last year that if you show it, Telluride, you cannot play in the opening weekend in Toronto when there's all this press and industry there. They enforce that. 
mixed results. They're seen as bullies. It's a David and Goliath. It played thing. very badly. It so, did. And it was a public relations fiasco, really, right. because so, they went out and announced it and made it a big foray. And in fact, you know, they could have played it out a little quiet, more quietly behind the scenes. And now they're, you know, the announcement is that, yes, we're going to do everything on a case by case basis and we're backing off. Well, that's not entirely the case because the way it's being reported is if you play it, tell you right, you can play in Toronto that opening weekend, but you don't get the big venues, right? You're not playing in Roy Thompson Hall, for example, which is one of those places where you pack the house with hundreds of people, you get this rapturous standing ovation. That's how the movie's introduced into the fall season. So for, say, a 12 Years a Slave playing in one of those venues or or the Elgin Theater or one of those kinds of places, that's really what it means. So it almost I don't think Twelve Years a Slave needed to be in a big house, for example. Not necessarily, but for the studio or whomever else is trying to shape certain reactions, it's still a sort of a way of, of trying to suggest that you might want to start at Toronto. In other words, the well, that's an interesting question because basically what's going on is that a lot of the filmmakers uh, and a lot of the talent, the talent, the stars and the directors and so on, ha- especially if they start in, in Cannes, if they've already had the big, big media play in Cannes, they're increasing. There's a pattern where they will go to Telluride where they don't have to do all of that stuff. They don't have to get dressed up and go the, on the red carpet and do the press conference and all the bells and whistles, which are expensive as well, that go on at Toronto. And they go straight to New York. They go from, if they get invited, obviously. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how those patterns play out this time. Because last time, Toronto did end up with more of the mainstream movies and and fewer, you know, the, the real, again, still, people chose to debut some of the Oscar contenders in, in Telluride. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The whole idea that Telluride is somehow... It's supposed to build. I, I get it in theory, but when you actually experience it as we do, you see the the value of for a, a very, very small group of people seeing a movie in this contained environment, driving the hype for certain kinds of movies that then will receive a much bigger kind of reaction when they get to Toronto. It's an organic process, and I believe that one feeds the other. And, and, and they should totally, they're in sync with each other in a perfectly good way. Did I understand why Toronto freaked out when 12 Years a Slave was a surprise to them? That, too, has changed. They have, they have, they they have relationships with everyone, right. and they are going to be told what's going on. It's a communal sort of a thing. But I guess the bigger question is, why should anybody else care if you're not at these festivals? And I think the reason is that there's sort of this spiraling effect. Let's say that Seth Forget, you know, goes to Telluride and gets this huge reaction. Well, it's going to be a news story then. People are going to start reading about it and anticipating it then. What What's Toronto going to do? Toronto's going to kick it up a little bit because those people seeing the movie there are not just press and industry, it's also general ticket goers. So that's the first time a movie like that really will play for larger crowds and sort of test the waters. In I terms think of- we can expect just that to happen, you know, basically, assuming. But, but again, Telluride is a slightly different taste, uh, much more discerning, much more highbrow than Toronto. Uh, Toronto is filling a huge demand for a large number of slots and and so uh they're not as discerning you know and but what's what we're really talking about right now which is so interesting to me that it's all happening now in june 
is this is this jockeying for position for these for a very small number of key movies that are still to play out in the fall corridor, you know, as world premieres. Those are, and there's probably what, 10 of them at the most that are going to be in play. And, and, you know, which festival is going to get the, the, the first one that's, and there's two more big slots in, in New York and, um, you know, quite a few slots in, uh, in Toronto. Yeah. I mean, we can sketch it out a little bit more in terms of what the fall season offerings are that we we're still anticipating. I mean, Hey, there's another Pixar movie coming out in this, in November, the good dinosaur, and uh, there's trombone. Well, that's not going to be a big festival. No, the festival. Maybe, maybe maybe part of the awards conversation with alongside Inside Out. But there's also Trumbo, which is a, the Jay Roach film with uh, Brian Cranston. One. Definitely something people should be maybe anticipating. Not because it's Jay Roach so much as the the subject matter. It's got a great actor, Brian Cranston, playing playing this blacklisted screenwriter. There's a couple others that that we haven't really heard quite enough about to to know if they're they're going to. Well, make I could imagine there. Scott Cooper's Black Mass in Toronto, for example. Sure. Um, the Danish I, Girl with Eddie Redmayne. Absolutely, is that's going to be a big gender. one. Yeah. And that, I know Toronto is going to be going after after that. Could be one for New York as well. I could see that too. If, if, it, if it's strong enough, yeah. 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 One and of the then, things, and then there's demo. We'll see about. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking at some of the uh, the the list. Um, I think the Hateful Eight is going to be too late for those festivals. Just like Django was, it's always down to the last minute with Tarantino. Although it opens earlier than Christmas. There's some interesting Christmas stuff worth considering. The Revenant in Yuritu's action That's movie. That's one. That's a big one. I, it doesn't strike me time. as an Oscar movie, but who knows? But it, right around that same time, Star Wars is coming out just a few weeks earlier, so it's going to be an interesting period. Oh yeah, in the heart of the sea, the the Ron Howard. I think that looks like a Toronto play. And what about By the Sea? Joy. The Angelina Jolie movie, By the Sea. It's coming out the thirteenth of November. Thirteenth. So that's a that is a good candidate. So By for, the Sea might be a Toronto. part of the conversation. That, was, that sounds like more Toronto than Telluride to me, or New York. And even Oliver Stone's got a movie coming out on Christmas with uh, Snowden. Another yep, Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie. So that may not be ready for the the Christmas movies are sometimes not ready. Like J- David O. Russell's Joy, he's going to hang on to that until the last possible minute. And just based on things I've heard about that movie, it sounds like it might not be a, a real awards movie anyway. So right, right, right. Sometimes people have it to looks sit commercial. Out. You're you're quite right. Um, I can't wait to see The Revenant. Oh, my God. That's probably the thing I'm most looking forward to. It looks like a a lot of fun and uh, a very different sort of change of pace for Inuritu. It's actually a very promising sort of decision for a director like that to go from a big, successful award season movie like Birdman to doing something that's more of an action movie. I like that idea that you don't need to then suddenly work in a particular mode just because people are seeing you in that way. And David O. Russell, but too. it won't be a conventional action movie, and it, it and it will probably be intensely natural naturalistic. What I'm, I'm anticipating is an amazing sort of natural lit kind of natural, you know, set in nature, um, you know, kind of movie that's going to give us a pretty visceral shot of what it's like to be in the cold. You know, in 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 in, a, in pretty dire physical conditions. 
you know. Sure. You know, one of the things there's the it... Steve Jobs biopic. Oh gosh, yeah, we can't forget about that one. There's Martin Scorsese's Silence, although I don't know if that'll be finished. The, another bigger movie that looks appealing to me is The Martian, which is Ridley Scott's adaptation of this very kind of, big selling book that yeah. people really like. It play. I have to say, the footage I saw at CinemaCon was very promising. I, I liked it. I read the book. It's not very well written, but it, it actually it's got an interesting story behind it because the the author just posted it online and it had an online following before he got a, de- a book and a movie deal and. All of the science is very, very accurate. When you read it, you can tell. It's basically about this guy in the movie played by Matt Damon who's on a Mars mission and gets stranded there because there's a sandstorm and the team has to take off and they accidentally leave him behind. So it's got it's got a castaway-ish element to it. The character is this sort of goofy botanist and he figures out a way to survive. So it's got that real science element that Inter- Interstellar had, but it's not as heady. It's more like, what if this happened tomorrow and how would people react to that and with a charismatic actor like Matt Damon as its anchor it it could work so of the bigger it did movies, look a little familiar and just it just compared to um Interstellar but you know right. that that's we have to see the film it's always always the challenge if there's yeah. one movie you can compare it to it's going to end up sort of overshadowing what the actual movie is so. but people weren't that high on Interstellar so if this one's better you know i mean the thing about about Ridley Scott he's such an incredibly com- competent craftsman yes but but he's also not necessarily a writer so a lot of his movies are delivered well, but but if they're if the underlying material is weak, like Prometheus, it doesn't come off in the end. I mean, I enjoyed Prometheus as a guilty pleasure, and this one could not be salvaged by that. So you're right; there are reasons to be skeptical. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I'm I'm always pulling for a director like that who can work on a certain scale to find that special sauce. You know, it's yeah, just... that's why I'm excited. But believe it or not, by by the Ron Howard Moby Dick movie, oh, <laughs> for some reason, it just looks good to me. Yeah, you're not you know? going to talk me into that one. I mean, maybe the CGI will somehow salvage whatever there is to to be had from that experience. He I'm, can do it. A... He's he's a good director. I mean, again, you you, you may think he's sort of um, resolutely mainstream, but when he's got, again, when he's got the right material, he can deliver it. Perhaps. I mean, I, I do like what he did with Dr. Seuss in, in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Ew! Ew! <laughs> Not one of my favorites. Just trying to provoke a reaction there. One so we I think, didn't talk I think about... the Andrew Hay Berlin movie, 45 Years, is ah, going to yes. turn up. 45 oh, Years, oh, which I saw so... out, out of Berlin this Can't year. Can't wait to it was see great. that. Nice little two-hander. Love to see that one coming back and getting some more exposure. We didn't talk about Creed, the uh, Rocky. That looks good. That looks really good. Yep, I've I've been hearing for a long time that it's it's got a real kind of tearjerker mentality to it from the director of Fruitvale, who certainly showed that he could elicit that Ryan response Googler. from people. Good, good director, right? Yeah. So th- there are reasons to be with excited Michael about Jordan. That. Yeah, exactly. So when we get the Toronto lineup, which is actually just right around the corner we're going to get a really clear sense of what our fall movie season is going to look like i mean this stuff happens really quickly though i will say having spoken to the toronto folks one of the things that i think is exciting about this year's festival is that i they they seem to be thinking through how can we find a way to structure this ginormous event so that the movies that you and I and everybody else are going to jump on to talk about because they're obviously going to stand out on the page before we see them, 
get that kind of placement where while the other stuff that we might not know about still has some exposure. So they, they've created a new section that um, is for filmmakers at the middle point of their careers, sort of uh, three, four, five movies in, as opposed to uh, right at the start, called Platform. And I really think there's a lot of potential there for interesting films from filmmakers who we may or may not have discovered on the festival circuit but could use that kind of exposure. A lot of times... Those movies get buried because Indeed. because because you critics are so invested in the narrative of making a new discovery or you know <laughs> I'll never forget I'll never I, I don't know why I harp on this I was in Toronto and Robert Altman was at that sort of midpoint in his career where he had already made some of the great films and they were behind him, you know, Nashville or, or, or whatever. And, and he had made this movie called Vincent and Theo with, um, Tim, Tim uh, Roth. It was a great movie. The, The critics ignored it completely, completely ignored it. It's always a challenge for those kinds of people. I mean, if it's at Cannes where the narrative of the festival is, now you'll see another movie from a great established auteur, it it feels different. But once you get into that cluttered fall season, it does feel like, okay, we know who those people are. Can we move on and and either look at the the big awards movies or these tiny little things? Because that's why it's dictated by almost a news uh, hook, which which is even more the case now because now it's traffic. Now it's about online people chasing traffic. There's a premium on Discovery, though, I would say. In sure. some ways, there's something valiant about digging into a really big lineup and finding the unknowns. It's not, it's not that those filmmakers who have already established themselves don't deserve to get praise. It's more that they've already established themselves, and when you're looking at a ginormous lineup of unknowns, there is a certain value that only somebody who has the platform to say this thing is worth paying attention to can take advantage of. The problem with the Toronto Discovery lineup in the last few years is that it's just been so large and unwieldy. And so my hope is that when we look at it this year, there will be an easier way to sort through things. And personally, one of the most gratifying things I find about this job is being able to pluck these things out of obscurity and say, hey, you should really pay attention to this. And then we'll double back and say, there's also these other great things from folks you've probably heard of before. I mean, there's room for all of it, but it's a very cluttered marketplace. And so the newcomers are the ones that are going to have the hardest time standing out. But there's also a section in Toronto this year for TV called Primetime, which I, my understanding is going to have an international component to it. So that's They're going to start really fairly small with the television, but if it works for them, uh, you can see them. Yeah, they're just recognizing the obvious, which is that a lot, and this is international too, sure. which is fun. That'll be good for us because we'll be able to be exposed to some of the good stuff that's coming that we may not be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, South by Southwest Episodics has been for better or worse, sort of market-driven in in the sense that it's really just sort of a platform for shows that have already sort of had premiere dates. These are not going to be those kinds of programs. They could be things that might get picked up by American networks or American networks may buy yeah, the if remake if I were them, rights. I would certainly check check them out. Because um, so, that- so many of the big hits have been remakes of, of uh, you know, like Israeli shows like Homeland and so right. forth. 
So in that sense, they could be stimulating some market or the revenue, the uh, the return from France. The return, which yeah. should not have been remade because the show was so great. The original is so great, so good. Well, so listen. I mean, speaking of which, um, I was very excited when you and I were on the AFI uh, Young Auteurs uh, Jury. I was very excited by this young filmmaker, uh, first time filmmaker. His name is uh, Alonzo Ruiz. Palacios, and the film was Geros, and we gave it an award. And I have to tell you, I was actually very gratified that it ended up like winning the five big awards at, at the uh, Mexican Oscars, which are called the the Aerials or something. You know, so that was sort of cool. Yeah, it totally deserved it. It's this really stellar black and white period piece about very new wavy very new wavy but not mexico city yeah but not overly experimental i mean it's it's very it's a very well acted kind of road trip drama of sorts very well shot and what an episodic because it is a road movie but but it's a road movie that takes place entirely in mexico city (laughs) which is such a big place that's possible and what i liked about it was it starts very kind of minimalist about you know this guy who's his mother kicks him out, and he goes to live with his older brother, and you're just sort of like, oh, it's another He's one of those cliches. disaffected students, right. and there's student strikes. But then it, it, it ends, and it, gets, it builds up to, to that sense of being just sort of pulled into the revolt. You know, the 60s countercultural element ends up being what's so gratifying about it's the movie. Set it. Really, the setting, yeah. yeah. So it's very accomplished first feature, and oh, it's, it's out very, now. It's a, so. he's a th- yeah, it is. You should see it. He's a theater director, and I think we're going to hear a lot more uh, from him. And then, um, as far as this weekend is concerned, I think you and I both agree that you know, walk, run, don't walk to see uh, one of the best films of the year, Love and Mercy. Love and Mercy, the uh, Paul Dano, John Cusack movie, playing one character, Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson. We talked about it a little bit before, but I think it's worth doubling back now to say, just to sort of highlight what a nice surprise it is that this movie works the way that it does. I mean, it's such a... But it's a- another film, sort of like Garros, in the sense that you feel an organic nurturing of a story that is, you know, that people dug into the material. They didn't give it a sort of obvious structure. And Aura Movement is such a talented writer. He took over the project and worked very closely with Bill Pollard, who wasn't going to direct it. And then they just came to a mutual recognition that he should direct it, that he was capable yeah. of directing it. And if you know Oren Movement, he's a pretty powerful guy. Sure. So he Bill Pollard had to direct um, Oren Movement right. in this for sure. I mean, Oren wrote uh, Todd Haynes' I'm Not There, and while that movie has much more kind of meta-narrative elements going on, but no. at the same time, it also is it's jumping around through multiple periods with a, a very sort of unorthodox, non-linear way of representing this particular artist that we're familiar with through a process of defamiliarization. And what I liked about, from the get-go, Love and Mercy, is that it does help you kind of break down your understanding of, of who the Beach Boys are, and particularly Brian Wilson, and start from scratch. I mean, the first shot of the movie, before we're oriented at all, is just Dano, slightly overweight, kind of muttering to himself, because, as we later learned, Brian Wilson suffered from schizophrenia. And you just sort of get the sense that he's, he's this quiet, disturbed guy in his own world, and with time, started to figure out how to funnel that 
sense of dislocation into his art. And you see that come together in the movie at the same time that it's also this gripping narrative about the doctor played by Paul Giamatti who took advantage well, there's of the old there's the old story where you get to see Pet Sounds and you get to see the young Paul Dano and the Beach right. Boys. And then there's a sort of, it's very interesting structurally because there's a middle period that we don't see at all. It's referred to. And that's how you sort of get away with the young actor and the older actor and I've met Brian Wilson, and I've met, um, Mel- Mel- is it Melinda Ledbetter, who, who is the woman who, who looks after him and marries right. him, who kind of who's played by Elizabeth Banks. And, and I, you know, this was pretty uncannily, you know, well done in terms of capturing what he's like. And, and then you get to, what you're talking about, you get to the, to the, to the current, you know, the, they, they, shot, they jump into the phase where he's trying to, where he's being totally dictated to by this sort of a horrible doctor. Played and by um, Paul Giamatti. Right, and, and and it goes back and forth, and you get a sense for how his demons sort of play out in these different circumstances and in, in really fascinating ways that, that never feel overly sentimental or, or, or sort of distancing, but at the well, same time... Well, it's a very dense movie, a, a very dense. dense movie, but at the same time, very accessible, yeah. and, and, we're, and it, I think it gets away with a lot of its... Um, sort of um, odd structure, partly because we're familiar with the story. Sure. So, yeah. so it, it, we're allowed, and we're very familiar with this rich, rich musical palette that, sure. that we get to experience, and that's truly pleasurable. And, and Dano is, is singing throughout the movie. It's really his voice, so there's no sense of falsity to that. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I, wouldn't, I would not call this movie a, a masterpiece per se, just because it, it's, it's very much a particular kind of story. And I think we're celebrating a certain kind of idiosyncratic organic filmmaking, which so is so rare. Right, exactly. And Paul Ladd was in a position, and he was abetted by a moverman, but he was in a position to sort of do what he wanted and, and, and go for it. Right. And, in that and sense, he does. It's, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's a movie that... It, in some ways... Because he's the producer. A, because right. he's the financier. Sure. He, he tells <laughs> the a boss. very... Uh, it, when, you, when you pull back many little pieces, a lot of it is actually kind of straightforward, but it's uncompromised in the way that those pieces are put together, and that's what makes it click. The, the biggest takeaway that, that I think we can both agree on is that if you're trying to decide what to see this weekend and it comes down to love and mercy or entourage, it's kind of a no-brainer, right? <laughs> entourage is worth skipping, believe me. Be I didn't even bother. watching the television show, which I liked. I enjoyed the TV show when I would drop in on it every now and then it's all these familiar characters and the sitcom element made it possible to not necessarily be drawn into the linear type of element of the show so I didn't finish it but then when they were screening it for critics I just sort of handed it off to somebody who had watched the whole show for the sake of you know being a completist and bringing that breadth of knowledge but I, I just don't understand why this movie even exists years later it just seems so Perfunctory. It, it didn't need to. It was a mistake, and I think they probably all realized that now. <laughs> of course, but, if, uh, if listeners want to hear, hope springs eternal. You know, right, it, 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 you know, they they are always going to try to you know rebuild a franchise if they if they have that option. Hope springs eternal is definitely your your sort of trademarked way of damning with faint praise. As it were. <laughs> of course, if people want to hear more of your opinion on this movie, they can tune into our TV podcast, the Very Good TV Podcast, because you were a guest this week 
in which you, you spoke about it at length with Liz Miller and Ben Travers. Which was fun, which was a great deal of fun. Though I will, I will ask you this. I mean, one of the reasons why I think they wanted you on there was sort of as, as this expert opinion, because this movie is supposed to be a window into elements of Hollywood. So, you know, it was fascinating. I mean, what I said, basically, what fascinated me was how it could be. I used to watch Entourage because it was this, I enjoyed it. It was an exuberantly exaggerated version of what is very much the case, you know, the way Hollywood is. But, you know, because Ari Gold is Ari Emanuel and it rings true. Um, And I never watched that show with a sense of, you know, ooh, that's not the way it is. I, I, it, it, it rang, you know, pretty true to me. Um, I, at the same time that it was sort of an enjoyable escape, and I was sort of fond of the characters. And I also, as boy centric as it was, and as as you know, they were all chasing tail, and you know that was part of the deal. Um, it never grossed me out or bothered me or anything. But the way it is exemplified in this version on the big screen there's some kind of transition that has occurred where it's sort of like they've strung three little half hour episodes into one big movie and it's it's up there in all of its scale and it's totally gross and totally misogynistic and totally offensive right (laughs) and i'm not the only one who feels this way which is weird because when you think about it that should be a good window into sort of critiquing the Hollywood system. You know, you were talking about Robert Altman before, and The Player is this great sort of showcase of what that could be. But instead, it sounds more like it's just sort of laying bare all this stuff, unironically. You know, we had a listener ask us on Twitter just uh, earlier today if if we would, would be interested in digging into the news that James Wan, who used to be a horror director and did the last Fast and Furious movie, is now going to direct Aquaman, which for a while was a project that was a plot point in Entourage. And it's in and, the movie. There's a shot of James Cameron, you know, with, with you know, it was, it was James Cameron's Aquaman, you know. Right. So <laughs> I, I guess, thought that was highly ironic. I found that very amusing that that broke on the day that, uh, you know, yesterday. So I guess the, the real question is, even if... Entourage is not a good movie and is this grotesque, sexist display. Is there a kernel of truth to it because of all that stuff? Well, uh, it absolutely represents the Hollywood we're all decrying right now in terms of, you know, the way boys rule. But but at the same time, um, the movie goes out of its way to to paint women really badly. That's 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 the problem. They don't need to gild the lily here, you know? So, long story short, the Beach Boys movie is better. Oh, yeah. So next week we'll have plenty more stuff to dig into. Um, I'm going to survive the weekend here in Seattle enjoying weather that is weirdly much nicer than it is in New York right now. And you'll be on the road or recently back from being on the road. We've got all kinds of stuff coming up. Well, the LA Film Festival starts next week with grandma so i will have seen that by the time we talk next and uh and we can see uh see where we are Alrighty, until then and bye enjoy
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.